You're listening to the podcast of Dr. Chip Bennett. Please consider following us and giving us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Hey, Chip Bennett here with uh, Dr. Warren Gage, and we're going through the book of Revelation. One of the questions that I get, you know, the reading of Joshua in, in Revelation, the, the, the idea of Rahab, you know, as the whore and maybe seeing some of the similarities of the, the lady in Babylon. One of the comments that gets said is, is that this sounds fanciful. This sounds like it's the only time I've ever heard anything like this, which is a valid mm-hmm. comment. I mean, it, it really is, and it's valid criticism. But I don't think that that's entirely true. I think there's more foundation here than maybe someone might see who's maybe not familiar with some of this stuff. And I think that would be a, a great thing is let's talk a little bit about why we would feel like this is not just some fanciful interpretation, that there there is some tradition behind it, but there's also some things that you've seen and, and been able to, to do when you did your dissertation. Got any comments that you want to make? I came from a well-regarded, exegetically-based school, mm-hmm. seminary, Dallas mm-hmm. Seminary. They gave us excellent training mm-hmm. and exposition, mm-hmm. and, and the graduates of Dallas are justly known for knowing the scriptures pretty well, mm-hmm. and I had uh, two marvelous professors, Bruce Walkie, who became like a dad to me. Mm-hmm. He was my Sunday school teacher when mm-hmm. I was 16. I've known him all my life. He's been a lifelong mentor. Uh, S. Lewis Johnson, head of mm-hmm. the Greek and the Hebrew departments at Dallas. We had excellent training in the languages and mm-hmm. in exposition. So when I was writing this, I, 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 was, I, I really formalized this when my school, University of Dallas, asked me to write on this topic for my dissertation. They were intrigued by it. Yeah. They really thought it had something to say. And so the uh, idea of John and Revelation being sort of the relationship of John and Revelation. And so and and, in working that the spinoff of it was to see the pattern, the typological pattern of Joshua and Jericho Mm. and how that seems to be determinative of the language that John uses. Like I mentioned before, he borrows from the Septuagint very heavily in writing uh, Revelation. He is, after all, the first Book of the Prophets, because mm-hmm. in the Hebrew Bible, history is prophecy. Now, you know that from Genesis 12, when Abraham goes sure. down to Egypt, that anticipates the whole Exodus narrative. Mm-hmm. It's very deliberate. And so Joshua is the first book of history to Protestants, but the first book of prophecy to the Jews, and that's significant. Mm-hmm. And so I was working on it, and I found that there were numbers of connections between those two books, John and Revelation. Mm-hmm. One of them was typology. If you read the two books together, the typological portraits of all of the predecessors of Jesus are much fuller mm-hmm. because you get different aspects from sure. both books. That typologically connects the two mm-hmm. uh, great books of John. So I came into this uh, narrative of the Battle of Jericho being the narrative theme of the book of Revelation. And I was talking to one of the members of my dissertation committee, Mark Goodman, who is still a professor at University mm-hmm. of Dallas. He's, I think, the most highly regarded Catholic scholar on Revelation in the country. Okay. Anyway, I was talking to him and he, he looked at me and he said, this is really good. He loved the insights and he said, but you can't possibly be the first person that's ever thought of this. And I mean, I found that pretty implausible myself and, and because I was seeing it so clearly. And, and so he sure. said, have you looked at the church fathers? <clears throat> and honestly, that was an enlightenment moment for me because I realized, no, I had never thought even to look at the church fathers. And that's because of my background. One sure. of the weaknesses of the Protestant tradition is they don't read anything before 1517. Live in a and they don't read anything outside <clears throat> of the Reformation. And there is a vast body of work 
Catholics call it the magisterium, but there's a lot of material up there. And I think particularly when you look at the fathers of the church mm -hmm. that we don't study, I mean, I was warned against them. You know, they used topology, which is a method you can't control. Of course, it is the method that the apostles are using to describe how Christ is the fulfillment of and greater than it. You can't do that apart from a typology. And it's explicit in many passages of the New Testament, but Protestants are iconoclasts. They don't like images. It's not just physical, plastic images. Sure. They don't like literary images yep. either, and they're not good with, yep. I mean, I will say that on behalf they're also of not my trained own in people. Literature either. Not trained in literature and not trained in symbols and understanding yeah. things like that. So I was shocked that I had never even, it never even occurred to me to look at, at the fathers. Mm. And so I thought, I definitely need to do that. And so, um, I mean, I was very frank with them. I said, you know, it's instructive. I need to, I need to do that. So sure. I will go and look. And so I did. What I found uh, surprised me. You know, there were commentaries, or sermon series by the fathers on, and the apologists, uh, the first and second generations, you know, people that were taught by the, uh, the actual apostles. And what I found was, was stunning. Um, very clearly, they saw Mm -hmm. Jerusalem as Babylon. They saw Rahab as a type of the church, mm -hmm. and they saw the significance of the name of Jesus as Joshua. Joshua. A book that documents this is by a Jesuit scholar, Jean Danielou, and I ran into his book. He summarizes the teaching of the early fathers, yep. and he has five categories, I believe. It's from shadows to reality. Um, a study, study of the typology, the biblical of the early, typology yeah, of the, of the, of the fathers. fathers yeah. yeah. Anyway, because he summarizes mm -hmm. the the fathers, a huge body sure. of work, and sure. so here's a summary. He says there are five major themes of preaching in the in the fathers. The first two are Abraham and Isaac, the sacrifice of Isaac, which is obvious in its typology, and then you've got Moses, who's a big character sure. in terms of. Christ is a greater than Moses, sure. whole theme of Matthew, sure. for example. But then the others are the sacred name of Joshua. That was significant to them, the fact that Jesus was named Joshua. Mm -hmm. Why would he be named Joshua? There's a whole body of teaching on, this, on the mm -hmm. saving name of Joshua. You will call his name Joshua because he will save his people mm -hmm. from their sins, and that becomes determinative. And then uh, Rahab as a type of the church, mm -hmm. and that's you, you think that's striking. Yeah. That Rahab would be a type of the church. <laughs> so I was thinking about all of that, and I was thinking, well, if that's the case, if this is what the fathers are preaching, and he's got all kinds of citations in there. Yeah. That, you know, he's summarizing sure. their teaching. So anyway, there anyone that's curious about that. When I thought about it, I thought, you know, Joshua is not highly regarded in biblical scholarship. And apart from the Battle of Jericho, that's really, we don't really read it even though it's very clear the person in the Old Testament that most imitates the Savior in terms of his ministry and mission. Mm -hmm. That's the connection. What is Joshua known for? He's known for his rescue of the whore. And that he's rescuing a whorish people is what mm -hmm. it amounts to. Same with Hosea. We saw mm -hmm. that theme. So as I was thinking about it, Rahab is not a major character. She only occurs in two chapters, I believe. But for this relatively minor right. book and minor character, she is a massive figure in the New Testament. Exactly right. I was seeing inspired confirmation of what the mm -hmm. themes were that Daniel was pointing out yeah. in the Fathers because she's one of the named women in the genealogy right. of Matthew. So she occurs in three books, actually. I think she occurs in four. But anyway, she occurs in the genealogy of Matthew. She is one of the ancestral mothers of Jesus. That's right. so He goes out of his way to bring these right. women in. You never mention women right. and in a royal genealogy. 
he's the son of David. You would never mention, you know, a woman of her particular sure. occupation. But he goes out of his way to say that. Mm-hmm. Jesus is descended from Rahab. Mm-hmm. I mean, it shows the grace of God, the expansive grace mm-hmm. of God. I mean, but God is always doing that. He takes the most notorious sinner in the Roman Empire and makes him Paul, right? Yeah, but that's when you look at, I mean, all of Scripture, it, God's always turning everything upside down. I mean, mm-hmm. if it weren't for grace, none of us would make it, but it should help us to intuit when we're seeing the people that are being saved by God, it should give all of us hope that if the guy who was persecuting the church, the guy who was denying Jesus, if Rahab, if these can be people of faith, well, surely I can be people of faith. It actually magnifies the case to me, to my mind, of justification by faith alone. Sure. Rahab has nothing to commend her. She's right. Noah cursed the Canaanites right. and right. Moses condemned them to death. 100%. So the law yeah. condemns her, but she yeah. has faith. Yeah. How did that happen? And on the basis of that faith, she's justified. Right. Now look at what the New Testament does with her. It's not ashamed of her. Jesus is, yeah. is descended from Rahab. And Matthew points that out because Matthew would note it. He was a publican, so he was equally <laughs> as despised. Sure. When he uh, has a party after he's called to be a disciple, who, who is it that comes to that party with Jesus? It's mm-hmm. publicans and harlots, right? Yeah, absolutely. So he's he's mindful of that, that this is an invitation to be astounded by the grace of God sure. in a way that perhaps we wouldn't ordinarily sure. think to do. I think I think he said, even though you see that grace in, in the birth of Christ, I mean, who are the people that come? The Magi and the shepherds. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- this is not the group of people no, that you would not. expect to be at the royal birth of the king of kings. Exactly. You know? And I think that, that that gestures to all of us is that if the Magi from probably the Babylonian area can come, and if the shepherds who were sort of like the lower class of society, never right. even got to go to temple unclean. because they were unclean. If they're the ones showing up to hang out with Jesus, then I think that Matthew and the writers are very aware of that. That they're, they're I mean, it's true, it's factually mm-hmm. true, but I think they wanna highlight that because they want us to know that, hey, this is a part, and Rahab is a a, a great example of that. I mean, and she's used mm-hmm. some more times in the New Testament. Yeah, she's, uh, in, she's the hero of faith mm-hmm. in, uh, Hebrews 11, yeah. and that's amazing. Yeah, make that he, make that point because he goes all the way down, beginning with Abel, who's the first one who suffers mm-hmm. for his faith. I think that's why we don't talk about Adam, but anyway, begins beginning with Abel and Enoch and Noah. Yep. He's going through the whole Old Testament, showing that they're justified by faith in the holy city that was to come. That's right. They knew this mm-hmm. life was temporary, and yep. they dwelt in tents. The the fact that Abraham was looking for a heavenly city. Mm-hmm. shows that Abraham had more knowledge about what God was doing than we sometimes allow these Old Testament people to do. And he I, knew yeah. that the land he walked was simply a picture of that That's heavenly exactly right. inheritance. Yeah. A lot of people who read the Old Testament go, you know, these people didn't know anything. They didn't know about Jesus. They didn't. Jesus is not in the Old Testament and all of that stuff. When, in fact, Jesus says the whole Old Testament is about him. And people start, well, how do you know that? Well, I mean, even Abraham, we're told in the book of Hebrews, in case we missed it, I mean, I think you can infer it in Genesis that he's leaving and taking a journey. You know, he's leaving the cities. And I think that Genesis 1 through 11 sets up that whole city theme. He's got to leave the cities. But Hebrews 11 absolutely slam dunks it that he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was And God. he said, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. Right. But the these all goes back to the, the right. to all of them, beginning right. with Abel yep. and Enoch. Yep. and no, They're all looking for the heavenly That's city. That's exactly right. But the point is, he talks about all these men. He mentions Abraham, and in that context, he mentions Sarah. Mm-hmm. But she's the only woman he mentions in the list under the headship of Abraham coming on down. And you get to Moses, and then the next one, yeah. which you would expect, Absolutely. is Joshua. 100%. And it's the 
last of the list, which is in, in the way which they would write the, the climax. Absolutely. Yes, he's saying their faith culminates in the faith of Rahab. Yeah. He gives her a remarkable eye. He displaces Joshua and puts Rahab in that place and saying she's justified by her faith, which is the narrative story. She's giving tremendous honor. And then after that, he begins to summarize. You know, you know he just goes quickly through all the rest, sure. naming people, but, but he's, he's highlighting Rahab. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the book, he says, therefore, like, like us, let us follow. Let's go outside of the camp. That's right. And she's called outside of the camp. I mean, it's mm-hmm. basically a, a Rahab appeal. Anybody that wants to come can come. That's right. So he gives tremendous honor to Rahab, more than we would ever expect. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's noteworthy. It is. Then when you come to James, he's even more radical. You know, and James is often quoted you know, as not being consistent with justification by faith. And I think what he's saying is, you know, there is no, if, if you're authentically saved, you will manifest works sure. of righteousness, which God has ordained that you will walk in. So I think, I think we lose something in that context, but the works that we have sure. of righteousness done through the Spirit that are yet imperfect, mm-hmm. they're not worthy for justification, but they, they validate, they justify our justification, in other words. And so to demonstrate that, he takes Abraham as an illustration. By faith, Abraham. Mm-hmm. Now, then he gives another illustration. Who would you expect to be given equal dignity with Father Abraham? The last one you would expect is by faith, Rahab demonstrated her faith by, you know, yeah. by rescue of the of the two spies. Mm-hmm. But the fact that how you know you think how dare he put Rahab in the same breath, you know, juxtaposing the verses there. Sure. And so what I'm realizing in all of this, he show, she is an example. If whatever you want to look at it, she is the general example, justification by faith alone, but then works that follow. You mm-hmm. see, it seems to me that's that's mm-hmm. beautiful. And I, that way I don't see a quarrel between Hebrews yeah. and between well, there's, But there's not a quarrel anyway, James. because in, in Ephesians 2, where Paul absolutely clearly says, we are not saved by our works. We're saved by faith, and, um, and that's a gift. And just two verses later says that we've been prepared in Christ Jesus for these good mm-hmm. works. So it, it, Paul and James are not quarreling. This is just something that's being superimposed on these books to try to make them sort of disagree. Paul never, and when you read the book of Titus, I always tell students, highlight the phrase good works, because mm-hmm. it's all through the book. It's, it, it, it pops off the pages once you start reading it. And so this whole idea that good works are not part of a truly justified person, th- th- there's no biblical warrant for that, but the good works are not what Say, the way I say it is this, good works are the fruit of our salvation. They're not the root of our salvation. Mm-hmm. That's the way I try to explain it. It's like we're not denying, mm-hmm. that we're not saying just believe in Jesus and then go do whatever you want to do. We're, we're, that's, not, that's not a biblical position. But a biblical position is not do all these good works so that you can meritoriously get yourself into heaven. I think that Rahab, to my mind, is the illustration of the biblical figure that reconciles Augustine and Aquinas. Hmm brings that together in a way that and differentiates it. And yet, you know, we see similarities, but we see differences. But the major point, the reason that I'm, you know, yeah. appealing to these references to Rahab is that when I think of the way that Matthew, the author of Hebrews and James are deploying her example, mm-hmm. they're seeing a significance in her and the Joshua story far beyond what my training projected that I mm-hmm. would see and then, so I'm going back and I'm surveying, and I'm seeing it's all over the fathers. That should have some significance. And, and then the fathers see these things, their mm-hmm. whole method, mm-hmm. as is the apostle, they're, they're consistent 
what, what the predicate that I'm finding in the inspired scriptures of the New Testament explains to me why you see such a flourishing of Rahab typology in the fathers. Mm. That makes sense to me. There's, they're, they're, you sure. know, they were taught by the apostles, and so they're emphasizing the same things, mm. basically, that taught me a number of things. One of the things is not to be afraid of the fathers. I wish I knew the fathers because I don't think we should be afraid of them. I think we should go back. Now, there is an excess. They're not inspired. Sure. You read them like you would read a commentary. Sure. But I, I know from my own legal training, the documents that are written back at the time, this is you know, 1,900 years ago, those documents are to be preferred in terms of their evidentiary significance because they're not reflecting the quarrels that came in later, sure. the, the later history of the history of doctrine. Sure. And so you, you read them, you recognize there's going to be excesses. Mm -hmm. They don't have all the counselor uh, benefit of understanding how the church is defined, sure. Christ and his person. But nonetheless, the Spirit of God is moving and directing through all of that sure. to bring us to a, an under, understanding sure. of who Christ like is. Like any other commentary, there's, there's mm -hmm. going to be excess. I think, though, one thing I would sort of say in, in, in terms of this, where do you get this from and how do you see this stuff and all of this, something that, that I've noticed in working with you and studying with you, I think that because of your commitment that I, that I think many of us do not get, I, I don't know that you got it in, in seminary training or that, that, that I got it, and I'm not sure a lot of seminaries teach this, is we're taught to read the books as individual books that, you know, mm -hmm. this, is, this is a Markan theology. This is a Lucan theology. This is a Johannine theology. And, I, and I'm not saying that there are not things that the writers deal with that are individual in particular. I'm not, not saying that. But I think what you've done, and, and I think this is where a lot of this has opened up, and I think that this is where other people can have an aha moment too. You're committed, and I'm committed to the same thing too, is that the, the overarching writer of these 66 books is not the individual humans that pen them, although we agree. They pen them, and they pen them in, in certain cultures, and they pen them um, with certain vocabulary words that were unique to them and all of those things. But there is a divine organizing mind over these 66 books. And so it shouldn't be problematic to see a Rahab reinstituted in the New Testament because if there is an organizing mind over everything, there should be the ability to see things throughout all of them. And I think that, to me, sets you up and sets somebody up when you're looking at John and Revelation. You're not going, well, let's, let's only focus here and let's only focus here, and maybe they're not the same author and maybe they're not the same person. In other words, the, the system that you come into this with sort of frames, it, it, it puts the guardrails of where you're going to go when you're saying, hey, I hold on, at the end of the day, although I believe there were people that pinned this 100%. The, the divine mind, the themes, it shouldn't be a shock that the beginning of the book begins with a wedding in the garden and the and end of the book with, ends with a wedding in the garden and there's, you know, there's the serpent. And there's the tree no, of so, life and the it, tree it, of life it, it, and the serpent. And, and, and I mean, and, I, and I'm not, I'm by no means arguing for the inspiration of the organization of the 66 books, but it is quite shocking that the center of the book is Song of Solomon. Which is a another wedding, you know. I mean, it, it, you, know, you know what I'm saying. That doesn't surprise me because I, I do believe that God has superintended over all of these things, and I think that you see that in the fathers more than you see that in modern commentaries. The, the modern commentaries, which there's tons of good stuff and, and and good godly people, but they tend to focus just on 
here. The fathers had more of this mind that, hey, all of this is talking about Jesus, and they were swimming in that. Was there excess? Yes, yeah. but their their commitment, and I think they got that from the apostles, was mm-hmm. that, hey, this is all, at the end of the day, all of these books were written by God. Mm-hmm. Do you, don't you think that's... Yeah, I think that what we have here is we have a Bible that claims inspiration, there's no question, mm-hmm. that was understood. The Spirit of God would inform mm-hmm. these writers. Yeah. So it's a, an amalgam. It's a, it's a product of a divine mind mm-hmm. and a human hand. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, it's, an, it's figurative of Christ himself, mm-hmm. who is authentically human and authentically divine. And so I think the analogy to help us understand that is Jesus was clearly divine. This book is clearly divine. Mm-hmm. I don't, anyone that has faith will see that. What about its humanity? And I think its humanity is very much like Christ. That is, Christ was sinless in his humanity. Mm-hmm. And I think the Spirit of God prevented the human authors from writing anything that was false mm. and inspired their writing and recording the things mm-hmm. that had permanent and probative, even when they didn't understand it, like Peter says, they didn't yeah. understand how you could have Christ that suffers and the Christ that is glorified. They didn't understand the sequence mm-hmm. that's involved in that. So I think how you, however you think of the scripture mm-hmm. will very much determine the way that you think of Christ. Mm-hmm. If you see his perfect humanity okay. and you see their per, the, the humanity here sure. has been superintended in order not to reflect any error. The other thing is that if Matthew and Hebrews and James are emphasizing the significance of Rahab, when I come to Revelation, what is John's commentary on Rahab? If Revelation is retelling the Battle of Jericho, mm-hmm. he really focuses on the whore in the city. And that's significant mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. He focuses on Jezebel in the seven churches. That's the fourth. It's the center, the chiastic arrangement of the seven churches. Jezebel doesn't seem to be saved. He threatens her. Most of the whores in the Bible come to faith, it seems like. Mm-hmm. you know, And certainly you see the the woman who virtual whore, the, the woman at the Samaritan uh, well, mm-hmm. you've got the woman caught in adultery, you've mm-hmm. got you know Mary Magdalene. Mm-hmm. You see that John is emphasizing theologically. He's seeing the mercy of God extending to these people, extended to these people mm-hmm. that you wouldn't ordinarily think are subjects of grace. Sure. If that's the case, and if the apostles are really preaching heavily the significance of Rahab, it elevates the significance of the way that we contextualize the whore of Babylon. Because if the whore of Babylon is the antitype of Rahab, then there's only one conclusion you can draw. And that I, I resisted that for a long time. I thought, I can't really go there, you see. But again, that was my crabbed traditional view of God and his grace. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, you know, the New Testament is prompting me to think, well, what kind of a God do you think is being revealed. Mm. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Sure. The one who showed compassion to the woman caught in adultery who never even asks for repentance or never, she's just there. She's almost passive. She doesn't sure. call him Lord, but that's about all. When he saves her, he just yeah. gratuitously saves her. And so I have to reassess how do I see her. Now we'll see other parallels that make it conclusive who she is. But that raises the question the city itself is called Mother of Harlots. So there are all kinds of just like Jericho, mm-hmm. Rahab surely wasn't the only you know, sure. whore in Jericho. And it was a city given to idolatry, mm-hmm. which is adultery, right? which is harlotry. But she is taken out and saved. I, I think I would need more. 
I, I needed personally more demonstration sure. of how the, how the gotcha. scripture, but I'm looking gotcha. for what is John doing. Mm. He's risking the fact that people will read that and say, well, it's the whore of Babylon that will be saved. And that's shocking, mm -hmm. right? When we read her description, mm -hmm. the most hideous figure in all of scripture is the way she's described. But we'll get into that in these other correspondences. Sure. We'll see, I think, quite compellingly, we'll make a conclusive yeah. case about her identity, yeah. what, who John wants us to understand sure. her to be. I think that, where did you get this? Where did this come? It, 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 it wasn't in isolation. It wasn't, you, you went over to some desk one day and sat down and go, you know, I'm gonna come up with this fanciful thing. There's a story behind how mm -hmm. all this works, you know? And for me, the story is, is that, you know, um, when I was working on my doctorate, you know, you, you, were, you, know, you were my advisor. I came out of a background where, you know, things were, charts and all kinds of stuff. And I had worked my way out of that. I, I remember as a, a young Christian, I went to a conference and they had all these charts out. And I remember saying to myself, I, I know I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'm, I know I'm not the dumbest guy in the room either. Like I know that. And I have no idea how you would have gotten all of these things. Like, I felt so inadequate as a Christian. How would you have known that that verse in Ezekiel needed to be transplanted to Matthew 24 and moved over here to Revelation? How would you know that? And, and I remember that it bothered me because I couldn't see what, what they were saying. And I thought they were good people. I thought they were Christians, you know, um, but I couldn't see it. And, and I remember, you know, as, as I went to school and as I went on to, you know, college and seminary, um, some of those things started peeling away, but but I never it, I never felt like I had the top of the box that made sense of the puzzle pieces. I knew what the puzzle box wasn't. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was like, it can't be this. Um, it, it might have some of it, but it can't be this completely. It was when we started working together, took a class um, on Revelation with you, and I remember in that class you made a statement. Um, and I had a, there was a, f a friend of mine that was sitting next to me. You, you were going through Revelation, and you were showing how Revelation that there was a sense in which time was actually going backwards. And I remember I I like elbowed. I'm like, hold this is this is just incredible. It was giving me some categories that I had not seen. Um, and then you know when as the closer we got, you know I sit down and I know that you and uh, Steve Carpenter had done some work on on Revelation and you, which we're gonna do here in this class, go through the correspondence of, of the way John and Revelation. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not an easy sell, you know? And I think you knew that. I mean, you knew that working with me. I mean, I was, I was, I'm not an easy guy to just say something. I'm, I'm, I'm the guy that normally believes what you just told me probably has inaccuracies and I wanna go investigate. I just remember when I saw the correspondence, I mean, you know, and I knew, I knew some of the father stuff and all of that stuff. I mean, I came out of a background where typology was more accepted than not accepted. In fact, it might—it probably was wildly done. But that being said, I wasn't shut down to that. But I remember when the correspondence happened for me to get to where I'm at today was once again not a fanciful place of, of just oh I I want to just sort of turn this book upside down and do something completely different than anybody's ever done. It, it took me a process as well to get there. And then, you know, then I started reading and studying on my own to, to, to go, do these pieces fit? Um, you know, and, and so to me, when somebody asked the question, isn't this fanciful? Isn't, no, I, I think that, I think there's, there's data. I think there's 
tradition. I think there's overwhelming vocabulary that, that seems, you know, so, so I, I, I don't think that anybody could say this is, um, you know, fanciful. I, I think someone could say, I've never heard this before, but I, I, I've done that in school. I, I've gone to places where there's people who, who have like an amillennial view of scripture and they hear dispensationalism for the first time, like, where did you get this? Or a dispensationalist listens to somebody who's an amillennialist go, where did you come up with this? I mean, none of these things yeah. came out of isolation. You know, dispensationalism, you know, you know, it starts in about the 1830s. So anybody who's going to criticize a view of Revelation that's going back to the church fathers and drawing from some of the things that, I mean, you can't say that that one is necessarily better than the other, but you can definitely say, hey, there's a little bit more length here of some of these things that are going on in terms of history than, than that. And I'm not saying dispens- trying to be pejorative towards dispensationalism at this point. I'm just trying to say, I, I, I don't think it's a fair criticism that this is something that came out of nowhere. Although I do think that putting it together and, and, and shaping it in the way that this is being done, um, this is plowing some new ground, but but I'm not convinced that it's it's ground that somebody hadn't plowed before. I just think it's it's we're able to put it together a little bit better because we have computers and we have word searches and studies where they didn't have back then. I think that's right. It came out of the blue for someone with with my background who yeah. really had not looked at the fathers, yeah. encountered them maybe a little bit in a history of doctrine class or something, yeah. but not yeah. not really a serious interaction with them because I was really warned away. Yeah, in terms of my mm-hmm. fear. And so, you know, if you read mo- modern commentary on Revelation, you won't find this anywhere. No. Although I will give credit to uh, Peter Lightheart, who does reference some of your stuff in his commentary on Revelation. So, I mean, he he's, he's aware. He's moving in a very positive direction, yeah. in my judgment. Yeah, and that's one of the newer commentaries that has come out on, yeah. you know, I think Revelation. it's about the newest large one. Yeah. And he's, he's a very, very capable scholar and a really yeah. wonderful Christian man. But I think so, that what I'm saying is, is I think that there is a, I, I think as time moves forward, that this this will become more of a disseminated understanding. We tend to hesitate at something that we've heard for the first time, but at some point somebody told us about the Trinity, and we went, okay, what, you know, and and and, and yeah, then, and then we right. went, okay, you know, because there's there's things where you go, what, you know, and but but I don't think the what necessarily should define and drive the acceptance of something. It should be the data and the force of the argument mm-hmm. that should be accepted. So um, I think that's good. I think that anybody who's maybe asking those questions, I think we probably give them some good. Some I good hope so. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please make sure that you follow us and give us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts.